0: Hello and welcome to the Iris Murdoch podcast and today I'm delighted to be virtually in the Iris Murdoch archives at the University of Kingston in their special collections. Uh, It's a wonderful place if you don't know it uh, we are going to introduce you to it over the next hour Uh, but we very much hope that um, if you're a listener and especially if you are interested in writing on Murdoch uh, that uh, once you're able to that you can get into the archive and explore some of the wonderful items and materials that we have in there. And joining me today, I've got uh, three amazing guests who have all been part of the Archive uh, team for a very long time. Firstly, we've got uh, Rachel Hershler with us. Hello, Rachel. Hello,
1: Miles. Thank you for inviting me.
0: No, it's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Uh, she's been regularly visiting Kingston University Archives since July 2012 uh, to work on the materials in the Iris Murdoch collections. And it began when the uh, letters between Iris and Philippa Foote were acquired. And Rachel was part of a community team invited into the university to be voluntary transcribers. And she stayed on to work on further letters, Murdoch's journals and her poetry notebooks. And she's been, you know, almost a decade um, of dedication uh, to which um, we couldn't do without her. Um, So it's wonderful that she's uh, been a part of the team for that long. Also joining us today is uh, the Kingston University Archivist, Dana Miller. Hello, Dana.
2: Hello. Nice to be here.
0: Thanks for coming on. Uh, She took on the role in 2018, having worked alongside the previous archivist, Katie Giles. I must say that Katie was a wonderful archivist, um, as is Dana, and Katie did so much in the early years of the archive to um, get it all um, put together, so I must um, thank her for doing that. Uh, But Dana's been doing some wonderful work in the last few years, um, not just on the Murdoch archives, but of course um, across the university's collections, and she's worked within the wider library and learning services team since 2001 and my final guest today and a regular on the podcast um, is one of the prime instigators along with Avril Horner and Peter J Comrady, um Professor Anne Rowe hello Anne hello Miles thank you so much for coming back on um, Anne is of course a visiting professor at the uh, Research Centre at the University of Chichester uh, she's Emeritus um, at Kingston and of course author and or, and or editor of a huge range of works on Murdoch, including uh, works that have really um, drawn on the archives to a great extent, especially um, Murdoch's collected um, letters, Living on Paper, which came out in 2015, um, Iris Murdoch, Literary Life, um, Sacred Space, Beloved City, and so much more, including her most recent work um, titled Iris Murdoch and the Writers and Their Work series that came out in 2019. And let's start with you, because you were there at the very beginning. What's uh, tell us a little bit about the archive? Where did the idea come from, and what were some of the first items that came into the university?
3: Um, I'll be delighted to do that. Um, Just as I was putting all this information together for the podcast, uh, it struck me that that the wealth and the breadth of information that we have at the Murdoch Archives now is is staggering. It's stunning, Um, and I thought surely now Iris Murdoch's life what must be one of the most extensively catalogued of the 20th century miles i wonder i mean would it be fair to say that yes i think it would i think
0: um certainly some of the earlier writers like beckett and wolf and Eliot, would be um you know very well recognized and you know all all their letters and journals and, and so much more are out there but i think sort of post second world war i can't think of another author who's um not just got had so much published about them but there's so much unpublished material as well um in in the archives not just of course at Kingston but at um, the University of Iowa as well which holds her uh, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, manuscripts of her and holographs for the uh, for the novels so yeah I, I think I would absolutely agree with you Anne on that point
3: yeah and, uh, I mean the, uh, the growing importance I think of this archive is uh, nationally and internationally is because it's a fully paper archive uh, and it spans the entire second half of the 20th century. I mean, I think that we've got material in the Murdoch archives that ranges from the 1930s right through to the to the 1990s. That's seven decades uh, of, of material. And of course, these paper archives are now becoming increasingly um, an endangered species in the age of digitisation with emails, Facebook, Instagram. So digital resources, I think, are. So disposable that um, I don't know, will we ever get a a living on Facebook, the the collected postings of Ian McEwen or, you know. So these paper archives, I think, are are gaining in significance uh, as the years go by. And I don't, I can't imagine any digital holdings that will ever have the charisma or the charm or the emotionally compelling aspect of of this paper archives um, and I think
0: it's the attraction yep. isn't it of going in and being able to to hold and touch and smell and and look through and, and get a real in um, of these items and get a real insight into I, I suppose the the pub the, uh, the the personal private figure behind the, the public persona and image. It's, the
3: whole, it, it's also it's the whole atmosphere mm. of, of the archive yeah it's the quietness the silence and, and holding these objects, uh, particularly the letters, in your hands. And it, it's almost sometimes a, a kind of mystical experience and that you feel that sense of presence uh, in a way that I couldn't imagine coming from any other kind of um, environment. So they're very, very special, I suppose. That's the point I'm trying to make. The actual physical archive itself going into the building. Um, so. I think I'm going to go through a run through the major components of the Murcott archive, but individually, um, they they say a great deal, but in its entirety, I think this archive is much greater than the sum of its individual parts, mainly because Iris Murdoch was not only a novelist, uh, an author of 26 novels. She was a fully fledged, highly respected moral philosopher. She was a serious public intellectual, deeply engaged with politics and the social mores and faiths and cultures of her time. Someone at the last Iris Murdoch conference said to me that he thought that Iris Murdoch could have been one of the f- most famous and influential theologians of her time had she chosen to go along that line. Uh, and as well as that, a, a, f- a novelist, a philosopher, a theologian, um, she was interested in politics, She was a poet, she was a dramatist, a wife, a friend, a lover, a teacher. And all these different personas are reflected in these archives. So they tell many, many different stories about Iris Murdoch, and they record her history and they make history as they reveal things about her and her life that we didn't know before. In the, the, the 16 years I've worked with the archive, I think two qualities, about Iris Murdoch have emerged out of all this material, and they never fail to impress me. First of all, her stature as a human being, her generosity and her kindness is, is legendary. She was loved by everyone whose life she ever touched. In all the years that Avril and I worked on the letters, we never heard anyone have anything bad to say about her. It was always her kindness and her generosity. So that's the first thing. And the second thing, the vastness of her intellect, the panoply of her interests and knowledge out, that come out of the archive is quite staggering how anybody could have so much going on in their lives. I mean, she dedicated four, day, four hours a day to writing letters as well as doing everything else. I mean, uh, it's huge. Um, the, the achievement of her life is huge. So anyway, the Kingston Archive story began in 2002 when Iris Murdoch's working library from her Oxford came onto the market for a staggering £150,000. It it is a remarkable library. It comprises over a thousand books on philosophy, theology, psychology, politics, art, drama, painting. This was the working library that she had around her in her study in Oxford as she worked. Now, the jewel in this crown was the fact that over 500 of these books in varying degrees are annotated in Murdoch's own hand. They've got underlinings, margin notes, detailed pages of notes on front and back fly leaves. Uh, These were the notes that she made as she was reading and she was working with these books. Now, clearly, these were going to be incredibly useful to scholars, revealing how far these works informed her thinking. and and her immediate reflections on them, and then how they feed in to her own work. These annotations are still there uh, in these books in the library. Um, I made two efforts at getting funding to get these transcribed, and although they were rated very highly, we haven't got them. Uh, So people have to travel into the archives to look at these uh, at the moment, but they are, I think, one of the singly most important um, aspects of, of the Murdoch archives um, the Oxford Library also included a handwritten notebook of 376 pages recording Murdoch's thoughts on a lecture she heard given by Jean-Paul Sartre which he attended in Brussels in 1945 so you can see there the potential that this archive has to enlarge Murdoch's scholarship um, now, when this happened in 2002, Avril Horner had just joined Kingston University as professor of English. She felt that Kingston University was the natural home for this archive. I can hear her saying now, well, it has to come here. We, we have to do this. Um, Peter uh, Conrady, Peter J. Conrady, was emeritus professor at Kingston at this time. So he had taught Iris Murdoch for many years. So there was already a very strong link between Kingston and Iris Murdoch. And we already held a very substantial uh, library of all her books and literary criticism about her. So it fell to me then to raise the £150,000 to secure the library, which I did with the help and generosity of many individuals, uh, including John Bailey. It was John Bailey who was selling the Oxford Archive uh, in order that the proceeds would go to St Anne's at Oxford. And then he very kindly gave, gave us a very handsome donation uh, in order to buy it back for Kingston University. I, I will say thank you later to the, to the bodies who helped us. Um, but just to say for the minute that this library is the foundation stone for the successive growth of the archive. Now, one of the really important things to mention here is the media inference interest at the time which turned to be, out, to be crucial to, to the, the future development of the archives. The final £30,000 I needed, I'd raised £90,000 for these archives, and we were £30,000 short. Um, I went uh, onto the BBC Radio 4 uh, pro- programme. Um, it was uh, the PM programme, I think, um, and made a bid, you know, an appeal for this money. When I went down to my uh, email the following morning, I had an anonymous donor who'd said, Dr. Rowe, the £30,000 will be transferred into your account. Now, the media interest in the archive and the the national and international press was hugely uh, impressive and important. All the major newspapers, The Times, The Telegraph, The Guardian, the TLS and international newspapers and radio stations, I did an interview with Radio Moscow, with Radio Belfast, they all covered the story and this coverage generated other major acquisitions. We were now starting to be habitually given first opportunities by booksellers to buy books owned by Iris Murdoch. We received many individual donations. Um, It was a joy to walk into work and go to my pigeonhole. There would be Um, packages in there with books, with theatre programs, with photographs, all sorts of things, all manner of things coming in. And of course, it was at this point that the many thousands of letters that we now house in the archives began to to trickle in. Just want to mention this serendipity aspect of of the acquisitions. Um, the theatre director, the uh, Shakespearean, distinguished theatre director um, Bill Alexander, was sat at the breakfast table with his wife when she read about the acquisition of the Philippa Foot letters, and said to him, "Darling, haven't you got to play by Iris Murdoch under the bed somewhere?" Um, and indeed, he did. Iris had given him her own adaptation of *The Sea, the Sea*. Uh, which he kindly donated to the archives and a staged reading was performed at the Rose Theatre Kingston in January 2013. So that gives you a flavour how these archives have been developing Murdoch scholarship um, in all sorts of different ways, not just in in research. Um, Now, by now, another significant archive had been acquired by um, Kingston, and this was the Conradi Archive containing literally hundreds of the papers amassed by Peter J. Conradi during the writing of his official biography. Um, It's it's an extraordinary archive. It includes records of all the many interviews he conducted, copies of letters of hugely significant significant figures uh, in Iris Murdoch's life, including Elias Canetti. Now, one of the jewels in the crown of this archive is the typescript of Murdoch's unpublished book on Heidegger. Now, this was the last serious philosophical book on which she worked before she died. Uh, this has not yet been published, um, and we are hoping, Miles, maybe you can update us on this, that this is being edited by Justin Brooks, who's professor is. at Brown oh. University. And, and um, is, is it on its way?
0: We hope that it'll be out with Oxford University Press um, in the near future, yeah, along with a. Um a long um, sort of exposition on sovereignty of good as well so um, those of you who are interested in Merleau's philosophy there's some uh, really interesting and fascinating new material um, coming into publication in the next couple of years.
3: Before I move away from the Conradi archive I should say uh, that Peter has very generously added on many occasions as he goes through his papers and finds things um, this, this, this archive has been added to over the years in fact Dana and I were with Peter not so long ago, um, he gave us a, a wonderful collection of photographs of Iris Murdoch that would be incredibly useful for many people for p- future publications. So these archives um, are dynamic, they're not static, they're not sort of dry paper archives that are sitting there. They're being used, they're being added to, and they change. Um, another major addition I'd like to, to mention um, came with the sale of the library from Iris Murdoch's London flat. She kept a London base until her death until 1999. Now, it's a comparatively small collection but does contain um, all the books that she, she was using when she was um, working in London and some of those are annotated. Um, but there are some treasures there. There's the leather-bound gold leaf-encrusted inscribed copy of The Sea the Sea which was presented to Murdoch on winning the Booker Prize in 1978. Uh, And one of my favourite collections in the archive comes from this collection. It's um, Dame Iris's first Bible, uh, and it's inscribed to her, to Iris with love from granny. Um, And of course, you know, the importance of all these things is necessarily about their significance to Murdoch scholarship. But as you were saying at the beginning, Miles, when you hold these things, if you hold that leather-bound copy um, in your hand and you hold her Bible, there's a tremendous sense of presence and they, are, they just become magical objects. Um, and while we're talking about my favourite acquisitions. Uh, we have a collection of several hundred, I think, beer mats that I'm not sure. I think may have came in with Oxford Library, which Iris collected uh, as she frequented all the, the London pubs. Uh, so they all tell their own uh, different stories. Um, so the next thing I really need to talk about now are, are the letters. Um, Dana, can you tell us how many thousand letters we have in the archive now? Um, it's I think it's about 4,000. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So there's a fair um,
2: few boxes in the archive, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You really, you really had to go through them you, very
0: carefully and decide which ones to uh, to put in the uh, the 2015 collection.
3: It was incredibly difficult, and you know, not only deciding which ones to put in, then deciding which letters out of those many hundreds of letters uh, we would choose to go in. It was it was a difficult um, thing to do. Uh, so we've got. Examples, we've got letters for her to so so many of her beloved friends. Um, Wonderful collection of letters to her fellow philosopher and and lifelong friend, Philippa Foot. Letters to her one-time lover, the writer and activist, Bridget Brophy. The political theorist, Michael Ogtchott, the mathematician and philosopher, George Kreisel. Um, Among my personal favourites are letters to a fellow Somervillean. Uh, Lucy Klachko who became Sister Marion at Stanbrook Abbey. Um, There's some extraordinary letters to two of her students friends at the RCA, David Morgan and Rachel Fenner with whom she had perhaps quite unwise relationships at the time. Um, Now one of my favourite letters, run of letters that we didn't include in in Living on Paper uh, was to an American fan who became a pen pal uh, and whom she never really knew very well. She only met once, and his name was Roly Cochrane. Um, and these letters are important because as she was growing older, these late letters, and that free song of excitement with all the relationships with friends and lovers that were going on in her life, it's almost as if she uses this letter run to re-experience in them, to call them back up to memory and translate them again into her fiction. I find them incredibly moving. But I could have chosen. Almost any one of these letter runs um to illustrate uh how incredibly interesting all these letter runs are and and you know still coming in uh, we still occasionally get some letters um that we didn't know were out there and um, in relation to the letters, I am in fact duty bound to mention that um Many of the letter runs and other acquisitions to the archives were kindly donated with the help of various funding bodies. Uh, and these include the Friends of the National Libraries, the Heritage Lottery Fund, the v Purchase Grant Fund, the Breslau Foundation, and members, of course, of the Iris Murdoch Society and Kingston University itself. Um, and I have to mention here um, the work and the help with all these acquisitions are from Francis White because uh, I was teaching at the time, and Francis was indeed my right-hand lady throughout all this. Thank you, Francis. None of this could be said without you there in the background. Um, The next thing to mention about the letters is, of course, that the content of these letters could sometimes be problematic. They reveal enigmas and contradictions in Iris Murdoch's personality uh, is as the, the same as any other human being. Uh, the letters also indicated how far her characters and plots often mirrored people and, and events in her life. but it must be said that they were always transformed through the imagination so that they were anonymized, they became impersonal, not recognizable to those who, who were being in some senses portrayed so the archives and the letters started saying an awful lot about the kind of writer uh, Murdoch was and where her inspiration came from now all this points to the responsibility of the guardianship of this information um, there is a huge responsibility involved in amassing an archive you have to preserve not only the integrity of the archive itself, but you have to preserve the memory and the reputation of the public figure whose life you are working with and championing. Now, this, you know, inevitably you shine a light into corners of a human life, revealing uninhibited, uncensored emotions that are not now regulated by the caring, loving hand of a biographer. And since her death, I think judgment occasionally in the the media has been sometimes harsh in terms of Murdoch's private life. So much so that after the publication of Living on Paper, um, Avril and I felt compelled to intervene in in relation to what we felt were sexist and unfair attitudes expressed by certain reviewers. Uh, Indeed, The Guardian was very happy to publish our concerns while a more stringent complaint to another newspaper, uh, which we thought was inaccurate, uh, was ignored. So just to make the point of view that all this material um, has to be guarded in some way, and and the issue of the responsibility is is a serious one.
0: Yeah, and I think um, thinking about um, those questions about archival ethics, it's really Interesting question, because you're not just sort of um, the guardian of the materials themselves, but also how they're presented to the wider public, if you are going to go out and publish them. And also, I wonder, yeah. I'm sure going to pick up with, with Dana later about how, you know, you come publish materials available and, um, and, and permissions and copyright and, and those sorts of questions as well. But Anne, you were mentioning about um, how the letters can sort of um, highlight elements of the novels. Well, of course, the journals can as well. And um, I'd like to bring Rachel in at this point, because, um, Rachel, you've been working on transcribing the journals and um, and thinking about how they link to um, not just the novels, of course, but other elements of her life as well, and how important they are as an unpublished resource. Would you like to um, jump into the conversation and, and tell us a little bit about uh, your experience of working on those and indeed other, other elements in the archive?
1: Yeah, so um, uh, I chosen a few things that she wrote in her journal and I've linked them um, in in her journals and have linked them to um, some of the novels and um, I also have an example of one of her poems and how um, that links to a novel and I think you know for me apart from the just the actual sitting and doing the transcribing this this element is what really keeps me going because I love making those connections. So um, my first example is that in her 1954 journal, um, I think it was under the net published in 1954. Um, anyway, that it, that's the sort of yes, yes, it was, yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: you know she's she's uh, a published uh, she's a published author then, and uh, this part from the journal I just you know when I was doing it really a uh, sort of. Um, enjoyed transcribing it. So she wrote on March the 30th, 1954, Glenn Gareth. She's on holiday um, in Ireland. I walked along the coast, then climbed over rocks to a promontory with pine trees, golden seaweed on the rocks, sighing to itself and touched by very quiet water. Then I saw two seals. I climbed along the edge of the sea to be nearer, They went away. I sat a long time on a jutting out rock, looking at seabirds and islands on which goats were leaping, the islands very golden with gorse and lichen-covered rock. Um, Then just as I was about to get up and go, it began to rain and a rainbow began to appear on my left one foot on one of the islands at that moment one of the seals came back and swam quite close to me continually turning his head to look at me and slowly the rainbow increased and completed itself till its other foot reached the rocks on my right in the middle the seal the islands and the hills far away opposite with the sun on them and then a couple of days later she wrote all is beautiful and sad here though so i've had moments of intense joy the seals um so um so as we're linking that to the novels there you know there are several novels where seals are are mentioned and are quite important significant yeah, so I was, just, I was just thinking of the um the unicorn there the unicorn's my first example so um yeah, I mean, the quote from that, Marion has gone down to the sea and um, she thinks she sees somebody in the water and um, you know, Murdoch wrote, the face was floating in the sea directly opposite to her, just beyond where the waves began to rush in. As soon as she'd seen it, it disappeared. Marion gave a little startled cry into the roaring of the sea. She realised the next moment that, of course, it was only a seal. Uh, so I think that image she had in Ireland its uh, on her holiday is very much still there. And Moy, in The Green Knight, she thinks she sees people. She says, you know, she thought uh, people are swimming in the wild sea. Many people, many faces turn towards her, big gaze, um, big eyes gazing at her. Um, but, of course, like Marianne, you know, she realises later after Bellamy has saved her from the clutches of the waves that you know she was she was seeing seals. Um and um I think you know, really the the last example is from The Sea the Sea when um Charles Araby sort of finally sees the seals he's been sort of searching for throughout the novel. And um yeah the, the little bit i've sort of noted down um i do skip a bit but um i love this passage it says then i saw them below me their wet doggy faces looking curiously upward four seals swimming so close to the rock that i could almost touch them and as i watched their play i could not doubt that they were beneficent beings come to visit me and uh and bless me so but, you know that's that's one example. Um, and the other which I did write a sort of blog around <laughs> was um, after read, um, actually reading the article, um, Miles, you found in the Badminton um, uh, School magazine, 1938. So Iris Murdoch wrote that when she was pupil there. Um,
0: oh, was that um, the, uh, the Millionaires and Monoliths?
1: The, yeah, the, that's, that's that right. One. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the article is about um uh alexander keeler who was a millionaire, millionaire taking um a, a, her and her some fellow um school friends on a tour of um the Avebury stone circles um which um alexander keeler, who you know was an archaeologist was very involved with and it just reminded me um immediately of um a journal i transcribed in which um her trip to um, China in 1979 is included. It was a, an official um, cultural visit. And she makes lots of comments about um, how uh, she doesn't really like the food and she's um, she thinks there's not enough food um, on this trip. So um, on um, October the 8th, um, she wrote Sea Slugs for lunch hunger and desire for custard creams and this persists throughout visit and the next day lunch apples but no knife i'm getting practically nothing to eat so um, a week or so later um i think you know she's she she gets a very welcome english treat um and writes um, on the, October the 19th, the Rolls-Royce men send us some Keela's marmalade for breakfast. Um, and uh, they met this man, these men um, from Rolls-Royce the night before when they were having a drink. So, you know, I thought, well, maybe I wonder if she, as she had her Keela's mar- marmalade, um, she thought about this, this trip because um, Um, you know Alexandra Keeler she writes in the article was of of marmalade fame Um, and um, then linking that to uh, nuns and soldiers which I did actually read after I um, did this transcription and um she one morning in in the novel she describes tim's breakfast one morning when he's in provence and uh she wrote tim had had his breakfast consisting of fresh crusty village bread uh, pallid creamy village butter and uh Keeler's orange marmalade from the larder accompanied by milky coffee so very specifically um keeler's, keeler's marmalade and the other thing that then i also sort of thought about was in both these examples sort of linking with this this article that stones are not very far away either so Uh, On that morning that uh, Tim is having breakfast, he's about to return to this um, ancient rock face that he found the day before. And and this place has a very profound effect on him. And then in the journal, a couple of days after um, uh, Murdoch's Marmalade breakfast, um, her group visits the uh, Stone Forest, um, which is in Yunnan province. And she wrote on the 21st of October, we arrive at the stone forest, which is a disappointment since we're only allowed to walk about it in a uh, crowded park with steps and pavilions at the edge of the rocks. The rocks themselves are wonderful and go on and on into wild country where we cannot go. Amazing Maxed Ernst shapes. And... um, well, I, I did um, note that in that part of the transcription that uh, she's drawn some outlines to sort of demonstrate what the, what the rocks look like. Um, and um, just staying on stones, um, I think one of the more unusual, um, uh, well, one, one, some of the more unusual items in the uh, collection are um, six of Murdoch's stones slightly smaller variety um, um, um you know they are held in the archive
0: too so that's that's all fascinating and, and certainly uh, i i hadn't thought about the the links between um marmalade in the journals and in the novels myself <laughs> um certainly when i was um uh, we put the uh, the essay millionaires and monoliths into um iris review number 10 um which for our listeners is is freely available as a as a pdf on the iris um, melodic society website if you want to download it um i was thinking about these these, these monoliths that recur time and again uh, within her fiction especially in the later fiction thinking especially of the message to the planet but could you say a little bit about the journals because um, obviously we we were um very they were very kindly donated all of murdoch's journals by um uh, mrs aldi bailey um john's um john's widow um to to the archive and of course they are at, at, at present um almost completely un, unpublished could you say a, um, a, a little bit um, about a, about the poetry as well and um, how important that is to the archive?
1: yes well there are um i believe there are 10 poetry um, notebooks and um uh, they've been slightly different um challenged to actually transcribe them because there are lots of poems that um Murdoch returns to, and she sometimes sets them out so she's got corrections on an opposite page, and so how how to present all that material. And obviously, um, Dana's been very supportive in that, in us finding a way to present present that, that material. Um, I think, again, I wasn't really expecting to find um, links with novels. And in fact, yeah, I've just only found one, so far, but um, perhaps I could just say a bit about that. So it's um, a poem I transcribed from, um, it's a 1970s poetry notebook. She's not dating her poems quite as regularly then, but it's from that period. And um, the poem is called Macaw and Snow, and it's one um, she definitely returned to, and I know, although, actually, Francis um, transcribed her last notebook of 1995, um, uh, um, it does appear then again. So it's one um, that uh, she did keep returning to. So um, I'll just uh, read the opening of the, of the poem. Um, so, McCaw in the Snow snow falls on gloucester road and black processions of umbrellas bob and penny large the flakes rotate you in your cozy cage behind the window pane hang upside down the pet shop star then amble to my tap and tumble eyeing me and turn a somersault you are a clown then spread a long amazing azure wing so uh it, it didn't occur to me immediately when i transcribed this but i've just been rereading the book and the brotherhood and uh, of course it leapt out uh, when i read the long passage so i'm not really going to quote from that it is a long passage where gerald looks at a caged bird um in a pet shop and he's uh remembering his parrot gray he loved as a child. So uh, in the poem it's a macaw rather than a, an African grey. But aside from that, there are just so many similarities. So you know, Gerard's in the Gloucester Road, it's snowing, you know, he and the bird make eye contact, it spreads its wings, and, and at one point the bird turns upside down, you know, as if it's performing a somersault poem. So they're just just many, many links. And the you know, the well final link I was going to say the poem ends. Um, dear Bright McCaw in exile, oh please pardon us the cage of the snow. And um again, Gerard he murmurs out loud an apology and then says to himself, so I think I'm apologizing because you know this bird is caged in cold London, um, rather than flying free in the rainforests of africa so now i'm going to be looking out for maybe some more links but i thought that was an interesting one that she really took that poem and put it into a novel
0: yeah i think that's that's fascinating because for i'm sure a lot of readers um and indeed for for our listeners they'll be drawing links between certain character types throughout the novels but to bring in the poetry and the journals and, and think of and indeed Juvenalia and other um, other pieces and see how it all becomes part of this great web of connections within Murdoch's work um, to bring that out to light I think is is, is wonderful and I think I'd like to, at this point I'd like to bring Dana in to, um, to tell us a little bit about um, what she's discovered as well working in the archive obviously she doesn't Jane, you don't just—I know you don't just work on the on the Murdoch collections, although they're perhaps the largest and most well-visited. Perhaps you can give some um, some some stats on that in a minute. Yeah. But what's what's been kind of the, the highlights for you, I suppose, and um, certainly as you taking it out as you took it over um, a few years ago.
2: Um, well, I think the highlights for me actually when I when I took over from Katie, um, I think my initial thought was, "Am I actually going to be able to do this?" job um because having watched her over the previous sort of nine years um i realized there's actually quite a lot to do and at the time when i took over um i had a I had a meeting actually i think with yourself Anne, and Frances, and it was literally by the way next year it's the murdoch centenary <laughs> so there's a little bit to do and uh so i think some of the highlights were preparing for for that despite the uh slight craziness that overtook us for the next year. Um, Having that exhibition come together the way that it did um, in Oxford was absolutely fantastic and I I really did enjoy working on that so that was a definite highlight for me. Um, Another one I think was working with um, some of our students at the university who looked at the Iris Murdoch collections not having had any previous knowledge really of who iris murdoch was Um, some of them had heard of the film and that was their basis for iris murdoch and actually having them come into the archive without any prior sort of knowledge or ideas about her having them look at her materials her letters photographs and actually the stones as well which proved to be a real draw for some of the the students it was really fascinating to see how they responded to iris murdoch you know throughout the sessions that i worked with them you know they ended up they were calling her iris you know it, it was no longer we're working with the iris murdoch collections in the archive it was like oh can i see iris's beer mats can i see iris's stones so the highlights for me over the last few years have really been how students and visitors have come to the archive and how they look at the materials in such a different way and get different things out of it than you think they're going to in the first place mm. you know I mean Could I put I out and Sorry, just yeah.
3: mention um, Dana do you remember when we had the students I think it was from Ibstock school yeah in the archive, and Dana uh, had put material out and in front of one of the young girls there was one of Iris's poems and she was really taken with it. And I said to her, would you like to read? And she read, I think it was about 10, 12 lines of the poem out. And it was absolutely magical. You could have heard a pin drop. Yeah. Those students were absolutely enthralled by the whole story, the life story of, of Iris and, and that poem. Um, that to me is one of the highlights of all the work that, that I've ever done. Uh, with you in the archives
2: yeah it's it's been fantastic the I, i the thing i actually like about archives generally is seeing how people respond to the collections without me having put my own you know spin on it or without me really telling them things i just like to see how they respond to it themselves and what work can come out of that and we had a great exhibition um from the students, all of whom had looked at various collections, but the Iris Murdoch, obviously in particular, had really struck some of the students, and they'd gone on to actually look at things like Alzheimer's and colour perception of Alzheimer's patients, and you know they'd they'd really thought about things from an emotional point of view as well as the design and the the academic module that they were working on, and I think the personal connections that people are getting from the archive is something really special and that's certainly a highlight for me as well. So
0: Dana, if um, if say there's somebody listening that wants to um, send in some material that they might have, obviously they
1: mm-hmm.
0: they, 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 they send it to you, what what happens when um, an item comes into the archive? How do you process it, deal with it and then make it available to people?
2: Yeah, so the, the process is, you know, if we receive an an offer of material um, which we're always very grateful for Um, what tends to happen then is once we've received the the physical item it will be recorded in our accessions register and we then depending on the size of of the acquisition we might have to make a listing of it which is essentially a word document which you know lists all of the items within the collection any potential conservation concerns and things like that and once we have our basic listing it then gets repackaged into archival boxes or sleeves something that we know is going to help to preserve it in the long term and then comes the cataloguing stage which is often (laughs) the longest part of the process and the thing that can can sort of take us quite a long time because we like to be accurate with the cataloguing and obviously in archives as well um, one of the interesting things about archive cataloguing is that generally speaking you have to keep the collection in the order in which you received it so for example i think some of the murdoch letter runs came to us um, in no discernible order whatsoever um, and that's the way they've been catalogued mm, I think, so you,
0: especially if the bridget brophy ones for example yeah absolutely yeah.
2: so you you don't necessarily um you have to get out of the mindset of uh having worked in the library previously of putting things in order you know you don't change it necessarily to suit what you think will be the best order you do it in the order that it's received because that reflects the person who actually created that collection in the first place. So um, so once the, the cataloguing is, is complete, that is when the collection is fully accessible to visitors. Um, what we tend to do, because we have collections which aren't fully catalogued, we can make them available to researchers because everything has a very basic top level record in our catalogue once it's been received by the archive so that you're aware of its existence but you might not be aware of exactly what's in it until we've catalogued it fully okay. but having said that we don't restrict access to those collections if people want to view them mm.
0: so if, if somebody who's listening thinks i'd you know who's able to get get there once um once right once uh, it's open again yeah. uh wants, wants to get access and, uh, and and come and visit the archive how would they go about doing it
2: Um, So yeah, so we work on an appointment basis and if you email archives at kingston.ac.uk and let us know that you'd like to come in, um, the opening hours when we do reopen will be Monday to Friday 11 till 3 and if you let us know when you'd like to come in and ideally what it is you'd like to see, if you don't know specifically Um, the items that you'd like to see if you can give us a general idea of your research area then we can often go back check through the collections and maybe work out with you the best items that you know will work for your research and then you just book in to our we put you in our calendar and um, you come along to the reading room and all the material is is prepared for you in advance Mm.
0: And of course, it is a brand new reading room as well. It's only uh, opened in the last year or so.
2: Yeah, that's right. So we we recently moved into the university's new townhouse building. Um, So we're on the second floor in the library. And uh, it's um, still a work in progress, I would say, the reading room. We're still waiting for some furniture to arrive in order to make it feel a bit more, for want of a better word, archivy, I'm going to say. And... uh, (laughs) At the moment, we've got all the basics, so we have the tables, we have power um and it can be used as a fully functioning reading room, but we just want to add some some nice touches to it.
0: sure um and I'm going to bring you um back in at that point um because i'm I'm sure you've got some um thoughts on the access to the archives as well.
3: um <clears throat> yeah, uh I think Miles, we want to say a little something about the little treasure trove that we found at the attic.
0: Oh, that's that, that. That would be wonderful. Yeah, that's that was uh, a great day out. I think.
3: Yeah, Malden um, and I went to uh, Iris's last home in, in Oxford, um, and Mrs. Bailey gave us access to the uh, loft there, and we found this is where we found the ten books of poetry, um, I believe, uh, a, a suitcase full of uh, photographs, some more letters, uh, her teddy bear. Um, that she had with her I believe when she died. Um, It's a wonderful archive and later on I found a plastic bag with um, little notebooks in Now, These were the notebooks that Iris would carry with her when she was on a train or sitting in a cafe looking out through the window. Uh, Only one of those uh, has been transcribed so far but there were extraordinary links in there. It was obviously the notebook that she was using as she was writing the book and the brotherhood. So there's lots more there. Well the huge challenge for Murdoch scholarship uh, over the past two decades has been how to assimilate all this fresh archive material that's uh, come through all these various channels. So individual scholars over the last 20 years from all over the world, Europe, China, Japan, America, Turkey, Portugal, Sweden, have travelled into the archives uh, to access the material, and they have um, contributed to a large number of books and essays on Murdoch. So three volumes of essays have been published by Palgrave in the 1990s, and many, many other independent essays and collections have appeared. Um, this, all this research has combined to form a revisionist portrait of Iris Murdoch as a writer, not least of all in relation to her prescient relationship to the ethical turn in literary theory, her paradoxical rejection of theories in which she appears, in effect, to be covertly participating. So all this has been aired in the public domain in, um, I think it's 11 miles by Murdoch conferences that have now been held, firstly at Kingston University and then at the University of Chichester,
0: Yes, and of course the and, and the Centennial um, Conference at Oxford as well. Yes, I think there are. Yeah. I
3: think yeah. Yeah. And then the publication of the Iris Murdoch Review, which I think is coming up to its twelfth edition. This also provides a forum and has provided a forum for some splendid essays and for the publication of some of the poetry uh, and extracts from the journals. Uh, so it all this is ongoing and of course living on paper, which only published of the three or four thousand letters that we've got in the archive only 700 so far uh were published in living on paper so there's massive um potential in the archives for future publications on the journals the poetry the letters uh so there's years of work ahead there
0: oh absolutely i I'd, um you know I think it's going to it's going to a, a life lifetimes of work. I think that, uh, that <laughs> could uh, come out come out of the archive. Uh, Dana, it's been it's uh, I think it's fair to say that it's the most popular and uh, the most accessed um, archive at the university. Could you give us some um, some details on that?
2: Yes. Yeah. No. It it definitely is our most well used collection. That's for sure. Um, and I yeah I went back and had a look at our statistics and actually if you average it out over the last five years just looking at the Murdoch collections um, we've had around 214 visits per year and which is rather a lot and a lot more than um, many of our other collections so and we've also had what's been nice about it as well I think and maybe just indicates the international reach of Murdoch and and maybe the reputation of the archive itself is that we've had visitors from Australia, the Netherlands, India, the United States, all coming specifically to look at the materials. And that's in addition to all of the researchers who come from across the UK as well. And I think what's interesting also is the number of inquiries that we get on average per year is 475. And that's just about Iris Murdoch. Mm. so and um,
0: and worth saying that if if people do our email archives at kingston.ac.uk and they have a specific question um, maybe they can't get to the archives but they want to ask something particular um, you will get back to them and uh, and and give them as much support as you can
2: yeah absolutely i mean that's what that's what we're here for we're you know we want people to come to us and and ask us questions and i mean i've you know been learning as i've been listening to to Rachel and Anne right now so you know I've I really like hearing from people who already know about Murdoch who don't know about Murdoch who are asking me questions and I have to go and ask someone else a question so it's I really like that aspect of it so yeah I'm I'm always happy to hear from people with questions if they want to arrange a visit if they can't arrange a visit then you know we'll obviously get back to them we help them as much as we can you know that's um if I can just mention, I mean, what Anne was saying earlier about digital collections, um, despite the fact that, you know, I agree they don't have quite the same effect as the tactile experience of, of working in the archive. But for those researchers who are too far to travel to us, um, you know, we we can sort of provide scans of some of our material so that they can research remotely. and that's become especially important you can imagine during the last year as we've been closed and people have been in lockdown you know it's it's become increasingly important for us to take on the demands of digital I think
0: yeah um but of course with with digital and and making materials um, publicly available like that comes questions of ethics and also of copyright of course and who owns copyright could
2: well yeah with regard to copyright I mean most of the material that we hold within the archive is still protected by copyright because as you you're probably aware um it doesn't expire until 70 years after the death of the creator and in terms of iris murdoch's unpublished works so her letters the journals the poetry etc the copyright for those items was um kindly gifted to the university and um in all respects we have to maintain copyright protection so in those instances where we provide scans to researchers we also um, provide a, a covering note to ensure that they know they are using that for their own private research it's only when it gets to maybe a publishing stage or if they want to reproduce a, a large portion of a copyrighted work that you know the, the copyright legislation comes into play um i think often when people hear the word copyright they think oh barrier that's everything we can't do but actually you know once you get maybe into the nitty-gritty of copyright it's actually a useful thing to 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 talk about and to find out about because you'll see that actually it's it is there to help rather than hinder Mm. so um but yeah but if people do have any questions with regard to copyright um as it relates to iris murdoch archives or any other archive collections they can just get in touch with me and i'll
0: yes it's that balance isn't it between fair usage in um in 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 research and then the actual publications of the material yeah, yeah and uh, just a note to say that um, any published materials of uh, Murdoch's fiction and philosophy are covered by her estate and uh, the agents are um, Curtis Brown again we can put a link in the in the SoundCloud if anybody's interested in getting in touch with them um for any any questions about copyright and and, and publication uh, Rachel I, I, let, let's come back to you again because I want to ask you um, obviously you've been doing this for a number of years now uh, where do you see yourself uh, moving next with the transcriptions, and what do you want to, what more do you want to do with the archive, I suppose?
1: Well, Anne did mention at the beginning that there are a lot of books, <laughs> a lot of books with annotations. And I mean, so many that um, she has applied for funding to help with those transcriptions. But in fact, I did do a couple of books before the the journals came in, um, just to start on that. So I kind of feel there's plenty more there <laughs> to look at. And the books were... Very interesting, and it was quite um, slow because as well as annotating, she would highlight passages and we were trying to just show which passages within the book she had highlighted um, so it was quite it was quite time consuming and all the work is quite time consuming because we're trying to to work out the handwriting sometimes you could be happily going through something and then you might spend half an hour trying to work out one word <laughs> and there might be dana there or fellow transcriber magnifying glasses coming out and also things just to work out that one you know try to get that one word right so um i think for the future i you know i'm very happy to return to return to the books and um and really, just get this uh, down, and going back again to what dana and and said there's nothing like seeing the real article, but if you have a typed version of it, um, you know the the article doesn 't need to be handled quite as much, and you can you can see what you know the content is sure.
0: yeah, I suppose for the for the journals and certainly for the uh, the Sarcher notebook and maybe even the Heidegger manuscript. Um, the, these things are not only precious, but they are quite delicate. So you do need to, have yeah. to be, you have to be quite careful. Do you have a favourite item in the archive that you think everybody should know about, and and maybe if they visit, look at?
1: Oh, I don't know. I um, hard to pick out one thing. Sure. But I've got an example of something that I think is fun. And um reading Murdoch and doing all this work, I think you know one thing you keep noticing is her wonderful sense of humor well i think i'm on her sense of humor wavelength so i did do um i did transcribe a postcard and of course postcards couldn't really be collect, uh, included in the living on paper because they're sort of visual things and uh, she sent a postcard um to bridget brophy and it's black and white postcard and it's got a sort of lineup of actors that have um been in a production of hamlet and they're all standing in these very very sort of hammy poses with their sort of hands to their forehead and i assume it's sort of a closing closing tragic scene and she wrote um the message on the postcard no dear bridget nothing it's just i have an idea i saw this production but perhaps only in a bad dream and when I transferred, I just laughed, and I thought it was a wonderful example of um, you know thinking like today people send whatsapp and messages and put you know little notes and and it's it 's a sort of a joke between friends and I think that postcard sort of um, for me it, it encapsulates that they had lots of fun together when they wrote to each other uh, having jokes and things and I think that postcard um, you know, bring is a wonderful example of that.
0: Yes, I think it encapsulates um a, a certain part of their relationship together. Yeah. Thank you. Dana, do you have a um a particular item that you'd like to highlight from the collection?
2: Um that's a difficult one, but I I actually really like the painting that Iris Murdoch um created. It's a still life, and I think the date on the back of it is nineteen forty-seven, and it's the one that it it has um I think a, a jug with a copy of Ulysses by James Joyce oh, and the flowers. next to it. Yeah. Yes. Um, and we, we, we used that in the exhibition, I think at Oxford, didn't we? And I, I just, I really like that painting. Um And I just think it's a, another aspect of Murdoch where, you know, I think others have, have said that she wished she could have been a painter, you know, and, and I think, that she must have obviously and she she was a, a fan of James Joyce as well I think that's been said as well by others more knowledgeable than than me but um I just I really like that that painting encapsulates something of her literature her love of painting and the colour scheme of it I just find very calming as well
0: sure yeah I think we um, uh, we used it on the back of um, um Iris Murdoch Review Number Eight, actually, as well. Oh right, the one that was dedicated to the visual arts. Yeah, yes. again, we can. And that's uh, freely available on the society website. We can make that available to people if they want to have a look at it. Uh, thank you. Yeah, because of course she um, she thought she could have been half a half decent painter. She dedicated her life to it, but instead, of course, dedicated it to to other areas and, and wanted to be yeah. an art historian at uh, at one point as well. Thank you, Anne. Um, the final word to you, I think. Um, favorite items, favorite memories.
3: Um. I think I'm sticking with the Bible, okay. my favorite item, because it's, it's not only got that lovely inscription uh, to Iris with Love from Granny. There's, uh, it's, she started young. She was, I think, 10 years old when she got it. And there's underlinings in the Bible. She's, you can see the future philosopher, <clears throat> you know, there. She's, she's only 10 years old. So I'd say that's my favorite Item. my favorite memory was when francis and i were uh, doing um the exhibitions for the were full of foot, foot letters the grant that we got from the national heritage lottery fund included the fact that we had to have um outreach work and we had members of the community and one of the community was a, a group of um young adults with, with learning difficulties and there was young one young man who came into the archives Uh, And, you know, he walked up to a picture of Iris and he couldn't articulate what he was feeling, but he he picked up the picture of Iris and kissed it. And that love and generosity of spirit seems to come out of everything, not just everything she wrote, but everything she owned uh, and who she was. So that was my magical memory, being able to take that out into the community.
0: That's lovely. Thank you for sh- thank you for sharing that. And I think to go back to what you were saying earlier about our um, exploration of the the loft at Charby Road, I think that's uh, certainly um, certainly a day I I won't forget. And uh, of course, the discovery of so much in there, as well of course as the um, I, I really like the um, the sculptural bust um, that was created by um, Tolkien's daughter-in-law. Um, that's that's now in the archive as well. I think that's a, a, a gorgeous piece of art to go along with so many other wonderful works of art, and so much more in the archive. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you all. Thank you so much for joining me on, um, on the podcast today. So my thanks very much to, um, to Rachel Herschler, uh, to Dana Miller, and of course to Anne Rowe as well. And my thanks to you all for listening.